you know, it feels like it's just that time of the year, and I don't know if you will agree with me, but it, <laughs> it feels like, and as I wrote this, I thought, oh, this is probably not a good way to say it, but it feels like one of those old cars that just don't want to start. You know, those cars that just need a little bit extra time and effort and sweet talk to do the thing that they're supposed to do, to start up and go. That's what this time of the year feels like to me. <laughs> like you just want to slow down. You don't know what new things to start to do or where you should pour your energy in or what you should leave and let go and only do next year. Can you, can you agree? Do you feel the same? But it's not that time of the year yet. I mean, there's still so many things that has to happen. Every time I talk to one of you, you say that you have some sort of AGM you have to chair or Christmas party you have to organize, or if you're lucky enough, a holiday you have to plan, or this grand finale of a project at work that you still have to finish. In some way, we have to get the energy to do all of these things. Energy that might be on the lowdown, that might be nearing the red. There are still so many things left to do. I mean, relationships to maintain and work to be done and meetings to attend and family to care for and friends to invite over for dinner, sermons to write. It's that time of the year where you either derive energy from the fact that you're almost done with this shocker of a year or you find yourself scraping every last bit of energy together to just make it to the end of the week. And so I was reading the scripture for this week and I kind of feeling the way I am feeling at the moment, had no idea what to make of it. Again, we are reading a parable today, and parables aren't always that straightforward with their meanings, as Lionel Nunn's also said last week. And again, this parable didn't make all that much of sense to me in the beginning. When we read a parable, we can't help it, but we immediately try to establish um, what is Jesus trying to say? Who's Jesus in this character? Or we read it and we read all sorts of characters and thought, think, okay, that might be God. And, and that's what God is trying to teach us through this story. But it all isn't always that simple. And so you might read something again and again and try and make sense of it. And, and the parable we're reading today, the parable of the bags of gold, is exactly that. Matthew 25 from verse 14. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, one more. There you go. Again, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to the other two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things, but I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold, so take the bag of gold from him and gave it to one of the one who had 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even they will have what even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So say the word of God. What an interesting read. By now we know that Jesus is a terrific storyteller. He knows how to get people's attention. He knows how to draw people in and really keep them listening. And now he's attracting them with money talk. He's talking about how Jews are being handled. He's talking about how people with a lot of money talk to people who don't have money at all. And on that note, he talks about how a person, a very rich person, interacts with three people who don't have money at all. Now, in some translations, they refer to the talents instead of gold. But this is not a metaphor for talents as in gifts each person receives. This is like a talent of gold, like a bunch of gold. A talent of gold weighed 13 kilograms. Yep, 13 kilograms. That was about 6,000 times the amount a laborer would see for his daily wage. Five bags of 13 kilograms of gold is more money than he would have accumulated in his whole life. In modern times, we're talking about something like $2 million given to that first servant. So Jesus is capturing people's attention with a fairy tale amount of money. This would have people's attention from the get-go. Imagine receiving $2 million after having nothing, being trusted with $2 million worth of gold. Can you imagine what you would do with it? And then we see how those first two characters' stories sound almost identical. The way they operated, the way the master spoke to them, it's exactly the same. Huge amount of money, they take it. Probably work enthusiastically with it, double it, job well done. Both of them. And then we get the third servant. Now he does exactly the opposite. Took it, 
buried it. The amount stayed the same. He probably stayed the same. Not so well done. In fact, he received the opposite reaction from his master. But before we go too far, the reaction from the listeners of this story, those first listeners, might not have reacted the same way that the master reacted in the story. In those days, it was illegal for Jews to ask interest on money from other Jews. Unfortunately, it did sometimes happen, but it wasn't the done thing. So this servant didn't want to go and put it to a bank to receive illegal interest. So it made perfect sense for him to go and hide the money somewhere. For some people, it would have been safe, a common thing to do. Hide your money somewhere in the ground. It's not such a bad idea as it sounds now to our modern ears. He doesn't want to take risks at that moment. He doesn't want to lose the money. He wants to be responsible, safe, careful. He doesn't want to go down when this master returns. And so hearing a little bit about the background, can you identify with one of the characters? With one of the, which one of the characters do you identify the most? I'll give you a minute. <laughs> Maybe tell the person next to you if you want. After my lengthy intro about this time of the year, you won't be surprised that I identify with servant number three. <laughs> At this moment, being safe, maybe being a little bit tired, wanting to take some time off, not having the same energy as those other twos, uh, those other two, thinking about all the right things to do and how to invest your money and how to work with it. But then he gets this backlash from the master on his return based on the safe choice he made. And this servant defends himself and say, no, but you, master, are a harsh man. I know you. You reap more than you sow. You gather more than what's yours. I don't want to upset a man like you. I don't want any trouble. Plus, he argues, I don't want to go against the law. I don't want to take interest that, that I'm not allowed to get. And so, you see, I'm doing the safe thing. I'm doing the right thing. But the master disagrees. You had valuable time where I trusted you with money to do the same kind of thing the other two did, to use their time and resources wisely, to make something of this opportunity. You had no excuses. Okay, now maybe I don't want to be <laughs> the third servant anymore. So what is this parable all about? Some of the earliest traditions say that this parable is about the coming of the kingdom of God. It's about the fact that there are some characteristics of Jesus that we see in the master, not all of them. It's about the fact that Jesus is telling listeners that their time is limited. There will be a time where they will be without him, where he will leave and where they will have to live without him. But he won't just leave them with nothing. It's all about the fact that he will be leaving them 
And the question will be, what will they do when he leaves? What will they do in the time he's gone? How will they fill their days? What will they do with the opportunities, the responsibilities the master gives them? When there isn't someone who will be directing every step of their way. When every person is left with enough to actually get them through till the end, what will they do? How will they participate in building the kingdom of God? Because what they are meant to do is based on what they already received. And that's what this parable might be telling us this morning. What will you do? What will we do based on what we have already received? Now, this story is told just before Jesus goes into Jerusalem. This story is told just before Jesus is about to prepare the people around him for the biggest act of grace they have ever seen. What will we do with the million dollars worth of grace given to each person? Will we see it, take it, work with it, double it, based on the grace and love that we've already received? Grace to, to the equivalent of bags of gold. What will we do with it? Will we play it safe? Will we keep it hidden? Will we take the time we've been given and do the absolute best we can? When we can so easily become tired and weary, understandably, by this time of the year. We don't have the same um, energy we had at the beginning of the year. We don't have the energy to still work on that wonderful but strange relationship. We don't have the energy to kindly tend to the things that keep coming up, those issues that keep coming up. We don't want to be so generous with our time and energy anymore. We don't have the energy to be diligent in that job that still needs to be done. So many times we say we want to work for the Lord. We want to do our bit. But the excuses come quicker than the word excuse. I'm tired. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't want to give up my precious spare time. Okay, I'll do it when someone asks me, when there's no one else to do it. A lot of excuses, don't you think? But this parable invites us to say, based on the grace that we've received, to do something, big or small, but do something and actively participate in the kingdom of God and the building of the kingdom of God. I want you to think for a moment about an orchestra, like a big, full-on symphony orchestra where every bit of the orchestra is necessary to build the stage. We need everyone in the string family, everyone in the woodwind family, every member of the brass family, every member of the percussion family. Now imagine one day one of the flutes decide, not today, I'm not going to play, I won't be missed anyway. And to be honest, we might not miss a single flute at first. But what if all the flutes go on a holiday? That might cause a stir, but they might say, um, there's still a clarinet, maybe they can play that bit. But what if one of the cellos hear what's going on? 
and say, well, if the flutes are going, I'm going with them. I'm not the concert master. I'm not the first violin. I'm going. I need a break too. One cello might not be missed. But what if the tuba now says, no, I don't want to play anymore? Then what then? There's only one tuba in an orchestra. And so the trumpets decide, well, we're going to leave too because the, the tuba's going holiday, we're going with them. You think we will notice when the orchestra is not playing at full strength? Do you see where I'm going? An orchestra needs all of its members. We need all of them to make an orchestra. Strip away the instruments one by one, the conductor will soon have a problem. We will hear the music, yes, but soon they might become a trio, a duo, a one-man band. We are exactly the same. We might think I'm small and insignificant. No one will miss me if I don't participate. What if I can't do it? I don't want to help out. I'll do it when someone asks me, when someone misses me. And the more members of the family have this sort of view, the harder it will become for the world to hear the tune of the music. Just as Isaiah 52 says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger that bring the good news. Breaking the news, that's all well. Proclaiming the good news, announcing salvation, telling Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful is the mountain when all the people come and do this. We all need to worship the Lord based on the part that we are called to play based on the grace that we've already received. And if we live and act and serve and give and help and pray and sing and play because we are so grateful of the grace we have received, we might still get tired, yes, but we will know where to go find strength. We might still get mad, but we will know where to find the calmness of God to cool us down. We might still want to play it safe and not upset the order, but be so filled with the presence of the Lord that we will be like those two servants who worked with all they had. Not based on the prestige or the honor that they might feel afterwards, not based on the applause or the congratulations they might get, but based on the fact that we have received life in its fullest and therefore, we will live with all we have, work with all we have, do our small bit to the best of our abilities because we can, because we are able to. And because if we don't do it, what will happen of us? Who will we become? And what will happen to this world? I remember when we were young, we would always play this game. What would you do if you had one wish? And I would always ask my sister, and she would never answer because she would say, apparently, it won't come true if you say it out loud. But I would always wish for money. <laughs> the day those servants received their money, it must have been like this wish coming true, enabling them to do whatever they wanted. And one of them decided to do Nothing. We too have received this wish this morning. We have received the news, the breaking news, that we can do amazing things. 
with the Lord who has given to us freely. We are invited, we are given permission to take our seat in the orchestra, to play our part in the music, to be part of the beauty on the mountains of those who bring the good news, who share the peace and grace and love of God. We are invited to actively participate in worshipping the Lord. I heard someone say in the week, as a small child, he was taught that to worship God, one occupies one's soul with God. It means that there are times where you, that you set aside for your soul to be occupied by God. There are times where you actively share your time with the people of God, serving them, giving freely. Feeling tired, mad, angry, unseen, unvalued, underappreciated, worship God. Occupy your soul with God. Amen. Give you a moment of silence. We let it all sink in and then we will.